Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor here at Bloomberg. And I'm Jenny Paris, filling in for Sarah Ponzak, who is on assignment. This week on the show, U.S. stocks just keep on trucking. They climbed to more record highs this week, even though there is not a lot of clarity on when we'll see a deal to end the trade war that's dented economic data and corporate profits. We'll talk to a strategist this week who thinks stocks may come back down to earth a bit before the year ends. And we'll also talk to a markets reporter who has been following the situations in China and Hong Kong very closely. And as always, we'll close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. And remember, you too can contribute to the podcast. Just call our Bloomberg podcast hotline at 646-324-3490. And you can ask us a question, suggest a guest for the show, or even share your own craziest thing you saw in markets in the week. Just leave a voicemail and maybe we'll play your call on the show. And that strange voice you heard, that is Jenny Paris, our co uh, special co-host this week, executive editor for Bonds and FX at Bloomberg. I think one of the leading authorities in Bonds and FX in the company, and I'm, I'm not just saying that because it's uh, year-end evaluation time. I, I swear, just totally separate uh, issue. Right, Jenny? Let's, let's just You're forget totally I said it. You're totally exaggerating. <laughs> forget I mentioned it at all. And also, we welcome back to the show, Lori Calvacina, the head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. Uh, Lori, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And also joining us again, another uh, second timer, I think, on the show, Yi Shi. He's a markets blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live. He's an expert on all things China and global markets. Yi, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. <laughs> all right. Laurie, let's start with you. I You had a note out this week that really caught my attention uh, because I think the S&P was trading at about 3,100. And you said, we're not going to change our year-end target of 2,950. So I'm reading it. I'm thinking, wow, that's about 5% drop from here. And I have to hand it to you, A, for not changing your, your year-end target in November. That's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of a shady <laughs> thing to do. But I think you make a good case for why we may see the S&P sort of come back to earth a little bit by the end of the year and hit that target of 2950. So why don't you walk us through your thinking on why you're sticking by that target? Sure. So, you know, we view our, our target as a signaling mechanism as much as anything else. And at this point in time, we don't want to signal to people that we think you should chase the market up in the short term. And if, if you go through and you look through a lot of our indicators and people who know me say, you know, Lori, one of the things we like about you is you're all about the data. So especially when we feel like emotions coming back into the market, we really rely on that data. And I see a lot of peaks in that data. Um, first thing we see when we look at our valuation indicator, we are back to levels that we saw uh, really mark a ceiling several times over the last few years, including when uh, the Tax Reform Act was passed back in January of 2018. Um, and it's marked a ceiling a couple of other times since then. 
when we look at the CFTC positioning data, we see something similar. Um, we are back to July 2019, September 2018, and January 18 extreme. So we think that you are just plain old-fashioned overbought in the equity market right now. And to be honest, Mike, when I talk to investors and I talk to people who are more bullish, I hear the FOMO in their voices. <laughs> and I look back at this chart and I think back to those peaks and I heard the same thing then. So even the sort of, you know, kind of... Uh, entry of emotion into some of the discussions about the market seem, you know, sort of scarily familiar to me at this point in time. And there are, you know, four other reasons we went through, but I would say those are the two primary things we've been looking at. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's a rational, logical, believable case. The one thing I will ask you though, is I feel like, uh, the end of the year, December is kind of when the, the period of the year, when rational, logical cases kind of go to die, you know, you, that FOMO really kicks in. You've got window dressing at the end of the year. Uh, you've got, you know, the proverbial Santa Claus rally. Is any of that sort of uh, a risk to your target, do you think? Or is there, are the fundamentals really, uh, do they feel like they're going to win out here? So, you know, I, I do think the sort of year-end chasing, I do think that matters. But I think you already saw a good amount of that in October. Um, and one of the things we've pointed out, we have this one chart where we look at when mutual funds' fiscal year-ends are. There are a lot in December, but there are almost just as many in October. So we think that's largely played out at this point. And honestly, I would say... Most active managers we talk to, they're outperforming for the year. Um, they haven't had as easy of a go as it lately. So I think there's a little bit of rebalancing that's going on. But I frankly worry more about profit taking for that remaining amount of funds uh, that have the December fiscal year ends. So with uh, this uh, year-end approach in, for these managers, really the priority is uh, preservation of their profit and their earnings. What do you think would be the catalyst between now and then that would change their views, that would prompt them to really go back to reevaluating uh, their holdings that they have so far? So one of the things we've talked about is the fact that 2020 expectations are still too high, and we frankly haven't seen that much of an adjustment to them over the last few weeks in earnings. Um, you know, we found analysts are asking companies, what do you think is going to happen in 2020? And the companies are coming back and saying, ah, get back to us in January and February. We don't really have a lot of visibility on that. But we do think that risk is going to start to get priced in at some point because we do talk to a lot of investors who say, well, maybe, you know, 9% earnings growth next year is not going to happen. And as I've talked to people over the past week, I'm really sensing a sort of you know, concern, well, we know we're not going into a recession, but are we really seeing what we need to see to think there's a major reacceleration coming? So there are some seeds of doubt starting to creep in. I would also say, frankly, on the trade war, we think that good news there has been a lot of the part of this move. If you look since August, we've seen tremendous outperformance by trade war sensitive stocks. And we're starting to see some stumbles this week where perhaps that phase one deal, which was supposed to be the easy, low hanging fruit, is proving to be a lot tougher to come by. Um, and we think that's been a huge part of this rally. I think where valuations and positioning are, the market can't handle bad news there. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, you talk to a lot of clients and, and fund managers and whatnot. Um, do you get the impression that the consensus is that this phase one of the deal is, is a done deal? Does that seem to be, you know, what, what everyone's thinking right now? Well, well, I'll give you a hard stat on that. And it's a little bit stale, but um, back at the end of September, we did an investor survey and we actually asked people, do you think a trade deal, when do you think a trade deal with China will get done? And we found that there wasn't a lot of consensus on the timing, but two thirds of the investors in that poll back in September said that they thought something would get done before the election in 2020. So I think there's, there's been a view that 
Trump needs to get a win on this front before the election. I've been hearing about that since August. That hasn't really changed. Um, So I think the expectation there is pretty high. Now, I think people are debating what will the content of that deal be. But generally, I think most people have expected something to get done, and they've just kind of coalesced around this 4Q timing. So missing that sort of original deadline, it was supposed to be at the APEC summit that was uh, canceled because of the unrest in Chile. I think that was scheduled for next week, basically the middle of November. Uh, missing that sort of artificial deadline is not really something that's going to concern people too much, I suppose. I think that something needs to get done sooner rather than later, but I think that particular point in time, I mean, you saw a reaction in the market very briefly, and then we bounced back. But one thing I would also tell you is, you know, we're we're sort of getting these dribs and drabs in the market, right? We're not, it, it feels like we're melting up, but these percentage moves every day are actually not that huge. So I do think that's, you know, a little bit of skepticism there may be weighing on things a bit. I feel like that's creeping in just a little bit. Right. Now, Yi, you're uh, in the advantage seat. If you're the only one among us who can actually follow the Chinese state media in the original language and social media, what is your takeaway of the sentiment uh, coming off of the Chinese media right now uh, from what you've read? Is it is the optimism there as well that a, a deal is uh, sort of in the near future or sometime next year? I think I would characterize it as a cautious optimism. Um, I think what's interesting is that the Chinese has increasingly take a hot line toward the U.S. Um, because they sense there's some, like, the timing is on their side. Um, with the election, with the economy, is kind of slowing down. Trump probably needs something. So what they ask for is, as a precondition for this phase one deal, U.S. need not only to call off the potential tariffs in December, but also to remove some of the existing tariffs uh, imposed as condi- precondition for any deal. And uh, the Chinese position has been quite clearly, if you want a deal, this is our, our demand. You have to meet our demand if you want a deal. So uh, it's up to President Trump whether he wants a deal or not. How easy would that be? We know that he does want a deal and he wants something positive going mm-hmm. into the 2020 election. But at the same time, we hear a lot of noise this past few days, especially about how Packing down on tariffs has become one of the Chinese demands, and that's probably the hardest one to deliver. Yeah, my sense is that the U.S. side tried to maximize the concession from China using the um, tariff as a leverage. Um, at this moment, it's not clear um, how much ground China, China needs to give up. So we are kind of hanging balance. Yeah, Jenny, I'm going to put you in the hot seat here as well. Uh, Just because you're co-host doesn't mean you get out of having answered questions. You know, you read all of our coverage on the bond market. And earlier in this month, you know, people were talking about these green shoots in the economy. One of the things that was backing that up is this sort of sell-off in the Treasury market. We saw the 10-year yield sort of creeping back towards that 2% level. This week, though, there seems to be yet another about face. I'm curious, what do you think is driving that? And is there is it at all possible to kind of predict the next sort of uh, trend for yields or is it a lost cause at this point? The bond, uh, the bond market, I would say uh, at the moment we are seeing it in a, in a rat where uh, traders basically are trying to decide where we're going to go next. And I think the best characterization that uh, I saw uh, this week in a note was describing it uh, as a line from the uh, Grand Old Duke of York English nursery (laughs) rhyme where 
it goes basically, the rhyme goes like, uh, Bonds went up, uh, marched up a hill, they took a look up from up there, and then they climbed back down. <laughs> and that's really Bond, uh, where we're seeing Bond Hills uh, going at the moment. Uh, when, the, when they knocked at the 2% door, I think traders and the market started to wonder what is going to take Bond Hills higher from here. And really what we're seeing now is uh, a lack of inflation still coming back to haunt, haunt this uh, market. And it's... Uh, uh, the uh, inflation trade that uh, people even dared starting talk again earlier this week, it has no legs if we don't see really prices moving up. We had CPI data earlier this week. All of that uh, is coming to really add up to there is no impetus for uh, the bond rally to, to stop at this point. Well, when uh, English nursery rhymes are being used to explain the market, I, th- I thought we were jumping ahead of the craziest thing in, in markets this week. That's a good contender. Reminds me of when Yi Shang sang the uh, Bond Market theme song to Simon <laughs> But, Larry, let's get back to you. I, you know, One of the things you've written about recently, too, is this rotation from growth and momentum back into value. How much of that is dependent on the signals from the bond market? I mean, obviously, financials banks are some of the the big stocks in the value index. Will the bond market sort of call the shots to some degree to the to that rotation? Well, you know, I, I will say to some extent, I do think this is just all one big trade and the bond yields right in the middle of it. So we've done a lot of work and we've put a lot of charts together. Uh, the bond yield moves up. Um, you tend to see ISM move up. And we think what's really being expressed in the industrials trade at the moment and the financials trade as well is just the idea that the industrial economy is bottoming. And if you go back and you look to the 2016 period, we actually saw the bond yield stabilize before ISM did. So we think the bond yield is being somewhat anticipatory. And investors are really trying to bank on this reacceleration in the global economy and the domestic economy. Now, I will tell you on industrials, we did upgrade it back in September, and that's not quite the call we were making. I think we caught a nice tailwind here, but the way we put it was, look, if we're at a turning point and we really are reaccelerating, we think that industrials are deeply undervalued. We think that they will rip on the upside. And we said if we're, by contrast, at a tipping point, we think that's already baked in. And if we lose the economy, we lose the consumer, the consumer sectors are overvalued, there's more risk there. So go ahead and buy the industrials anyway. They'll probably hold up on the downside. So I can see ways industrials could hang on here. But I would say, Mike, in general, I think you're right that the bond yield is calling the shots here. You know, and I, I keep hearing about these, quote unquote, green shoots in the economy. I think a lot of people are really talking about signals from the market itself, either the the bond market or the leaders in the stock market. Is there any sort of hard economic data that you're looking at? I mean, we still have a ISM manufacturing uh, index that's that's very weak. Uh, it, are there green shoots in the hard data? So, you know, when we look at things like the yield curve, you've gone from a mild inversion to slight steepening. That's coincided with the shift into value, the shift into small cap. That's traditionally how the trade works. Um, so I don't know if you would call that hard data or not, but it is something that is saying that the moves have been justified. Um, one thing that we look at in our small cap work as well as the year-over-year trend in the cash freight shipment data. And what we're seeing there is not not what I would call a green shoot necessarily, but you're starting to get less bad on that year-over-year decline. And traditionally, small caps do tend to get a little bit of a bid when that, that deceleration stops and you start to get a little bit less bad in terms of the decline. So I think you're seeing some things that can justify the bottoming argument my view is it's still maybe just a little bit too early to declare an all clear to declare this reacceleration. Um, we've gone through reporting season. I'm not seeing a lot of commentary on those green shoots.
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. We had a couple of days of testimony from uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell, and one thing that became clear is that he doesn't see any serious risks to the current expansion. Uh, and if anything, he also said that uh, uh, there isn't really what is characteristic in this expansion, there isn't any sector that is really hot. So you can't have a, a, a bust if there is no boom, as he put it. Uh, it doesn't sound like the Fed thinks that we are uh, towards the end of the cycle. Uh, and even they called their first rate cut to mid-cycle adjustment. No, you know, I thought I, I saw that same comment as well about the, the hot areas. Um, I, I'm not I, I'm not sure um, I would characterize what's going on with software and IT services stocks as cool necessarily. Um, you know, that's <laughs> something we've described as sort of a mini bublet. And I think there have been, you know, other examples of that as well. I think there are some many excesses that are around. You know, we, we see the same things when we look at entertainment stocks, for example, that they've been pretty overvalued and overbought. They're not quite as widespread as they've been in the past. Right. When I hear about the va- the rotation from growth and the value, I, I always wonder, is it really valuations? Is it the fact that the rest of the market is is sort of expensive and the valuations that are sucking people in? Or is it uh, the companies and the industries, those real cyclical industries that are in the, the value cohort for the moment? Is it, it Which do you see as sort of the, the driver of that rotation? Well, I think it's it's sort of a breakdown in the affinity for secular growth. And if you think about, you know, some of these software stocks, for example, or these IT services names, some of these Internet names that were doing well in the first half of the year, they were viewed as safe havens in the trade war, safe havens from an economic slowdown. And so there was a real desire to be in those areas. And that basically just coincides with the growth and the momentum trade. When you look on the flip side and you look at value, I do think a lot of it is the particular sectors. So we look at things like financials and industrials. They've done very well here recently. For better or worse, since 2010, those are two sectors that outperform when ISM is going up and underperform when ISM is going down. They are the cyclicals of this particular cycle. And so, you know, I think the the ability of those sectors to lead um, has really dictated that move into the value trade. We have also seen historically going back over many cycles that financials and industrials are two sectors that when they outperform the value trade is working generally. So I think they really go hand in hand. Uh, Yishi, it all comes back to the trade war uh, at the end of the day. And uh, I'm curious because you spent, uh, what was it, three or four months recently actually in Hong Kong. Uh, You had an assignment over there for Bloomberg. Uh, Ironically, you show up in Hong Kong and everything goes crazy. I don't know if if there's a correlation there. Correlation (laughs) is that uh, cause. But walk us through um, sort of your experience in Hong Kong, uh, what you saw, 
I'm curious what you think about the unrest in Hong Kong and if it could ever sort of collide with the trade tensions. Obviously, there's a bill that's kind of stalled in the Senate now, the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, that would uh, cause the U.S. to sort of monitor the situation in Hong Kong going forward. Could these two stories sort of collide and kind of gum up the trade talks at all? I think my opinion, my personal opinion, is that the uh, China's attitude has been like separate the trade from the diplomat issues, geographic politics issues. They trade these trade talk as pure trade relations. So I don't think the Hong Kong situation is tied to the trade talk itself. Uh, but obviously, the whole nationalism could affect the could give some voices of the hawks within the uh, the Chinese government. But I don't think these two things are go hand in hand. So even though we could have some bills uh, regarding to the Hong Kong human rights or even Xinjiang situation or even South China Sea, but we could see some positive progress on the trade front. Larry, do you do you think about this Hong Kong situation at all when you're when you're thinking about markets? We've thought about it a little bit, and you know we're we're a market. I'm a market expert, not a political expert, but you know we it, you you kind of have to put on both hats to some extent today in my seat, and we we've really just. We've seen so many investors speculate about who has the leverage and who has the incentive. And, you know, the way I look at this is I I do think that uh, neither side at this point in time, because of what's going on domestically in their own countries, can really afford to look weak. And so I I see sort of two sides that are going to be very determined to go in and really get what they want and stand up for their countries. And in my mind, that makes um, getting concessions more difficult. So I've probably been a little bit more skeptical that we get a phase one than a lot of the investors I talk to. And I've also, frankly, been skeptical that um, we're going to get anything of real substance that's going to allow businesses to have confidence to invest again. That necessarily, you know, a sort of weak deal wouldn't necessarily be an impediment to the the market taking off as a result of it, I imagine. Well, the the problem with a weak deal that doesn't really accomplish anything, and remember this is being talked about in different phases, is companies understand that there are bigger issues at play here. And if you get a deal that doesn't really address any of those and they aren't really off the table, I don't personally understand how that restores business confidence. And if you look at the conference board measure of CEO confidence, it's literally about as bad as it tends to get in middle of recessions. I mean, it is really, really down in the doldrums at this point in time. There's been a lot of damage done to business confidence. And so, you know, getting a weak deal while corporations know that there are still these bigger issues that have to be dealt with. I just don't understand how that changes the mentality. And I'll be honest with you, as we've looked through these corporate transcripts, we are looking to see what companies are saying about a phase one trade deal. And I I read one company that talked, I think, about a ray of sunshine. um, And that was about it. Um, I admittedly haven't gotten through this week's transcripts yet. I've only gotten through last (laughs) Friday. But, you know, I'm just not seeing a lot of table pounding, a lot of excitement over phase one deal. You know, I'm, I'm seeing it in the market. I'm not seeing it in corporate commentary. Uh, just to go back to China and Hong Kong, uh, it, how much does the situation actually weaken China's negotiating position? Like talking about a weak deal, does it put China on the defensive here, uh, having to deal with such a situation so close to home? Uh, China, we know that they have uh, tried to so hard to avoid some kind of credit crisis uh, in the, their own backyard. Uh, could this be some kind other uh, implosion that would actually uh, force them to uh, react in, in a way that hasn't been anticipated so far? 
Um, I think the Chinese position has been clear that the Hong Kong is uh, Hong Kong's government has the capacity and, and the capability and resources to deal with this issue. They respect this uh, one country, two system. So at this point, all these uh, issues are left with the Hong Kong government. Um, while the China is focused on its domestic issues, its relation with the, with the U.S., I don't think the Hong Kong situation is going to affect or change any of the thinking of the Chinese government when it comes to the trade or managing its own economy. In terms of uh, how China manages its economy, one of the tools that they're using is, all, of course, the yuan and the fixing, the daily fixing is always something that uh, we watch to see as to which way uh, China, the wind is blowing in China. W- what do you make of it these days? They have been actually keeping it pretty stable so far. Yeah, uh, it's uh, the market was kind of nervous back in July, August, when the yuan first broke the seven per dollar level that a lot of people thought was uh, like a second sec- psychologically very important uh, level. But uh, since then, the market has kind of come down and perhaps supported by all these positive sentiment toward the trade situation. The the fact is that PBOC have been largely hands-off since then over a couple of uh, months. If you look at the fixing relative to the actual price of the Chinese yuan, they are pretty close. So there's no any sign that the government or the PBOC is intervening in the market to support. At this point, is their attitude is kind of hands-free. You let the market to decide exchange rate. They are not in a position to push one way or the other. All right. Well, I think before we get to the craziest things, Laurie, we already put you on the spot on your 2019 year-end forecast. I'll be issuing my 2019 forecast in late December. We'll stand by for that. But uh, I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you've put out one for 2020 yet. Is there any uh, sort of teaser you can give us? Uh, no, well, look, we haven't put out a price target for 2020 yet, but we have actually published our 2020 earnings forecast. Yeah. And we, we put that out a couple months ago. We've been fine-tuning it ever since. And we're modeling in 5.5% earnings growth, which would be a bit of a recovery from this year, which looks like it's going to come in more or less flat. And I'll tell you that the sort of nuts and bolts of our model have been something investors have been really interested in, especially the last few weeks. Um, you know, I would say one big assumption that we have is we've got to think about 4.5% revenue growth baked in, some of that from sluggish GDP growth, some of that from inflation. But as I talk to investors, they're very focused on what the revenue backdrop will be. So that, that's been of interest. Um, we've baked in $60 WTI, which may be a little bit too high. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting is we've baked in flat margins, and that's something else that investors have really, you know, sort of un- wanted to understand why we've baked in. Commodity cost pressures have come down, and we frankly just seen companies have prioritized keeping their margins intact this year. Um, and then the last thing we're baking in that, that may be a bit controversial, we've got buyback activity moderating to about a 1% net share count reduction uh, next year, um, and this year it's going to come in more like 2, 2.1%. So, you know, that w- we think it's still going to be a good year from an earnings perspective, but we think the sell side is about, you know, twice as high as it should be. Can I ask what you've baked in for Treasury yields since you said that they're, I, they're acting as a signal? Um, you know, we're, to be honest, we're using the Bloomberg consensus data on that. Um, um, we, we, we really, we'll allow it. We'll yeah, allow it. Yeah, a shameless plug uh, for, my, for my host today. Well, that's good. I'm glad to see that get some use. And I will say, regardless of where the market closes this year, I think 2950, 3100, when you're looking at a market that's up 25% year to date, uh, Getting that close is, is a pretty good accomplishment, so congrats. Oh, thank you. And, you know, look, we, we put a 2,900 target in around Thanksgiving last year. Um, we 
pounded the table on it in January. And in April of this year, we raised it to 29.50. And we wanted to signal at the time we thought there was more room to go. We don't want to send that same signal today. Right, right. Yeah, especially after the December we had of 2018. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it took some guts, I think, to, to call for a rally this year. So let's get to those crazy things. Ishii, I think you did not come prepared with a crazy thing, did you? No, I'm relying on you. <laughs> That's all right. That's good. I've got I've got way more crazy things than, than we can probably fit in. We had, uh, you know, I like to look at what we call the alternative asset classes for my crazy things. And I, I will say, I mean it when I'm talking about alternative, and, and you'll see what I mean. And I think the listeners have caught on. So I've gotten some, uh, some uh, entries from people in Bloomberg and some uh, readers on Twitter who, who listen to the show. Uh, first one comes from Vildana Hyrick. She's kind of like our chief crazy things correspondent for the show. <laughs> she also always provides us with some good ones. And she found this story, uh, Bloomberg story, about a Patek Philippe wristwatch that sold for $31 million at a charity uh, auction by Christie's in Geneva. $31 million for a wristwatch. It does have dials on both sides for some reason, so I, I, don't, I don't know why, but I guess that... That makes it worth uh, $31 million. Uh, another one from a user on Twitter, at Paul David Walbrun. Um, I think he actually outdid Vildana with this auction. Uh, a bathtub shaped as a golden hippo <laughs> sold for $4.3 million at Christie's on Tuesday, uh, returning almost 2,500% to its owner who purchased it more than a decade ago. And that's a story by Katia Kazakina, our art uh, correspondent here at Bloomberg, who provides us with a lot of crazy market things when it comes to the art, uh, art market. I think I can outdo them both, though. And this is another auction. This one was held in Italy. It was for a truffle. Uh, this is the Alba White Truffle Fair. I guess they hold it every year. 2.2-pound uh, truffle. I'm going to play prices right, though. Uh, what would you, Lori, pay for a 2.2-pound white truffle? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. She has not modeled that <laughs> in her forecast for 2020. Ishii, what would you pay for a 2.2-pound white truffle? I'll give you a hint. It's a lot less than the, the, the wristwatch, but it's still a surprising number. $20? $20. <laughs> All right, Jenny Paris, come on 500. down. 500 $500? I guess you win. $132,000 for a white truffle uh, at this auction in Italy. So I would be worried if I went to a restaurant then. You know how they those restaurants that don't show you the prices? You could end up ordering a uh, a plate of risotto for like three three grand if it has this this truffle on it. But, but Larry, in, in all seriousness, I often hear people look at these ridiculous things like this and try to interpret it as some sign of euphoria in the economy or uh, among investors, is that is that a silly thing to do, or is there any information you would take from a thirty-one million dollar wristwatch and a four million dollar hippo-shaped bathtub? Well, look, I, I think these, you know, the the reason people make that connection, right, is just the idea that there's too much money sloshing around in the system, and there's a little bit too much ex excess risk taking. And I think there are a lot of different things you could point to this year that that suggest that while this is not as bad as the tech bubble, while this is not as bad as the financial crisis, there's there's a little bit of hint of that, hints of that, in, in a lot of things people are seeing these days. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. All right, Jenny Paris, do you have a crazy thing for us? 
I do. Uh, I don't think I can compete with the white truffle <laughs> or the expensive wristwatch. But uh, speaking to Laura's point about too, uh, too much money in the system and excess risk taken, we talk a lot about negative yields in, uh, in the bond markets. And uh, what uh, I saw this week uh, was a story about... Uh, negative yields in Nigeria of all places. <laughs> uh, I thought that was crazy. Um, of course, we're talking about real yields, but what's happening there is really because uh, the authorities have banned the pension funds from buying into some of the highest yielding uh, central bank assets. Uh, they have turned to three-month treasury bills, and now uh, they're yielding uh, less than the inflation rate in that market and uh, an auction this week. So the rec- record demand 30 times over. Oh my so God. there you have it, negative uh, Nigerian real yields. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> Although I imagine inflation's pretty high in Nigeria, So, but, but still negative real yields in Nigeria. Lori, do you have any crazy things for us? So I, I don't have anything particularly wacky, but I, I did talk to my team this morning and you know said I'm, I'm coming on the podcast and, and I asked them what they thought was the craziest thing this week. And um, one of the guys on my team came back and, and right away and he said, you know, it, it's the chart that we put out showing that we've basically erased the trade war. And, and what I mean by that is we have these baskets and we look at the, the stocks most exposed to the trade war and most immune to the trade war um, based on our transcript review. And we just looked at relative valuation and relative performance. And if you look at both of those, um, they bottomed over the summer and they're right back today at levels where they were in 1Q of 2018 before the trade war with China was a glimmer in anybody's eye. That's pretty interesting. And that goes to your point that all the potential good news is probably baked in from the, from the trade war. Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, if nothing else, um, we're right back where we started from. Great stuff. Well, uh, Lori Calvacina, Yishi, Jenny Paris, thank you all so much uh, for coming on the show this week. And I hope we see you all again uh, sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow Sarah at Sarah Ponzak. Jenny Paris is at Paris underscore Jenny. I'm at Reganonymous. Our guest Lori Calvacina is at L Calvacina RBC. And Yishi is at XIYE Bloomberg. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.